Good afternoon, KZMU listeners in Moablandia and beyond. This is Lisa, your host of Great Wide Open. And today we are doing our catch up on all things winter recreation here in Moab. Well, not all things, but things specific to snow and to snow up in the LaSalle Mountains. Right now, we're going to talk about Nordic skiing and the fantastic Nordic skiing grooming program that we have had up there in the LaSalle Mountains for many years now. And one of the co- co-coordinators of Luna, or one of the coordinators of Luna, and longtime um, coordinator and founder of Luna is Kirsten Peterson. And Kirsten, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners today? <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, I think Lisa said it all, but <laughs> I don't have a lot to add. But there there was a, a, you know, a larger group of people who, you know, got excited about this opportunity to create what became Luna. And essentially, kind of the the short history is the Forest Service got a grant to purchase um, a couple snowmobiles and grooming equipment and then a trailer to house them in, but they didn't have any money to, like, run a program. So they put it out there to the skiing community to say, hey, can we create a volunteer organization to basically make this happen. So that's kind of it in a nutshell how it started. And LUNA was formed, which stands for the Lower Utah Nordic Alliance. And that was kind of a play on up north, there's been a group for a very long time called TUNA, which I think is just the Utah Nordic Alliance. (laughs) So... Um, I think Luna sounds a lot nicer than Tuna, and I'm not sure what my prejudice <laughs> is against Tuna, but um, anyway, it's, it's smelly, all in I support guess. of doing more Nordic skiing. And, um, you know, really, we, you know, got a whole bunch of excited volunteers to drive the snowmobiles, towing our grooming equipment behind. We have just two parts to that there's a roller and then this Ginsu groomer, which kind of lays down the track. And, you know, over the years, we've had a you know great working relationship with the Forest Service, and we've had to replace, you know, the snow machines a few times. And the, you know, the volunteer crew has really evolved, but for some reason, I'm still involved, as well as my business partner, Matt Hebbard, who's kind of like the number one groomer up there, um, has been involved since the beginning. So... We're, we're probably, other than some of the Forest Service folks, I think we're the, the only consistent, you know, people that have that stayed with it this long. So you came to Moab in 1989 or 88? Um, well, first visit was in 1989, and then I kind of landed here the next year, 1990, by chance, visiting, got offered a job for a month, and the classic story, I've been here ever since. So. I, I, I live that story, too. Um, were you a Nordic skier when you came here? I had done just very little. I grew up skiing in New England and more downhill and had done, you know, plenty of cross-country skiing, but never really, you know, learned, like, proper technique or, you know, just kind of hiking around in the woods kind of stuff. So when I came out here... Just in various 
places I got introduced to um, skate skiing kind of early on, and that was something I really enjoyed and, you know, have kind of pursued both that and classic, um, you know, on a very casual, you know, recreational level. So it's just something fun. Get out in the snow. And what first, I mean, aside from the fact that we like walk out our doors and we see these, what I always say, the most spectacular mountain range in um, the lower 48 uh, looming outside our windows, what got you interested in going skiing up in the LaSalle's? Was it other people who were actively skiing up there or just obviously just like drove your car up there one day to go skiing? I think it was just, um, gosh, I mean, it's, it's been so long. I mean, I just started going up there. And, you know, cross-country skiing occasionally. And then there was a time, this was like way before we started doing any proper grooming, there was a, a small group of us that decided that we could, we could actually go up and skate ski up there. And nobody was setting a track, but people were snowmobiling. So we would ask the snowmobilers to like just kind of go side by side and set a little bit of a track for us. And it was really like backcountry skate skiing, you know, nothing that most people would ever think would be fun. But, you know, it winter, slow, you know, the mountains are so beautiful. We're just like, let's just get up and do this. So um, from that, I developed some really bad habits of how to skate ski. <laughs> Because I was going through deep snow at times. But. Well, it's also kind of survival skiing up there. Even, yes, exactly. Even in the most groomed condition, it's pretty right. rowdy for skate skiing. Totally. It's like either up or down. There's hardly anything flat. So you don't really get a chance to work on your form too much. But, you know, there was a there was a bunch of us doing that. You know, we'd just get up and have fun. And even this also, again, before Luna, there was a couple events that got put on that we helped out with, but um, McKay Edwards from the Moab Springs Ranch, he'd been involved, I think, in Tuna up north, and um, he put on a cross-country ski race that got called the Lassa Lopet, so Lassal Lopet, kind of named after, in Sweden, there's the Vasa Lopet, and I think Loppet means like cross-country ski race in Sweden. I'm just guessing. And he brought in a cat. I can't even remember. It was like the state parks like had a, a cat maybe up in the Manti. And they brought it down and they actually groomed the road for us for this cross-country ski race. Um, which we, it ran like two or three years. And uh, it was super fun and got people coming in from kind of all over the area, you know, as far as like Durango and like Salt Lake City. Um, People came down to do our little event. And, um, you know, it just that I think got the wheels spinning of like, hey, maybe we could groom, you know, this could become a thing. And, And really, you know, thanks to, you know, some of the folks with the Forest Service that saw the opportunity and saw some money available, you know, through a grant and made it happen. He sort of got the wheels spinning. And are we still in like the 1990s at that point? It was probably the early 2000s is my guess. So really close to the initial like or the formalizing of Luna. Right. Yeah, it was just a few years later that we got the, the actual grooming equipment and started doing our own thing. 
So the, we, there was grants that were involved, and mm-hmm. so was it the Forest Service or Luna that acquired the grooming equipment? The Forest Service got the grant and bought the equipment. So they've always technically owned the hardware. And then we just run a volunteer organization and raise money to help pay for gas. Um, that's the, our main, you know, over the years, depending on how much money the Forest Service has, to be able to put into the program, we sometimes have to pay for all the repairs. L- lately, we haven't had to do so much of that, but you know, just the gas and the oil and the, you know, coolant, all that stuff adds up. So, um, really, that's that's been our. You know, we we've, we've done very minimal fundraising efforts. Um, we're really lucky that um, the Grand County Trail Mix organization, which has kind of evolved into Grand County Active, Active Transportation GCAT GCAT right. <laughs> um, we're still in there. We're they've um, given money to the program for the last you know quite a few years. So we get we get some funds from there, and that's pretty much you know, and then some few donations here and there from people. So that's it's it's a very bare bones you know let's just make it happen kind of organization. Let's go back a little bit about grooming for those who are unfamiliar with what grooming is and maybe people that have been up there they just you know you see that oh well this road looks pretty nice and it's got like a mm-hmm. classic corduroy look to it. So what is the what is the goal of the grooming? The goal of the grooming is to create a level surface that um you know, ideally when we're talking about Nordic skiing that you can, so skate skiing is essentially like ice skating just with skis on instead of skates. And so you're gliding out to the side and propelling yourself along the trail. Um, And then there's classic, which is, you know, what people probably mostly think of when they think of cross country skiing is just like parallel. So when we groom, we set down a parallel track on the side and those classic folks really like to be in the tracks that keeps their skis in line um but the skate skiers will use the wider surface that is to the side of that um because of you know we're we're grooming on forest service roads and this is a um multi-use trails we are not grooming really just for the nordic skiers you know as much as you know, the Nordic skiers would like to think that um, there's lots of people, you know, there's backcountry skiers that use the track. There's snowshoers that use the track. There's sledding happening. There, you know, there's so many different dog walking. There's, (laughs) and just walking. It's amazing how many people go up there and just walk on the track. And we should get into like etiquette um, in a a little bit here. So um, it's, it is a multi-use trail. And, you know, I, I think that just, but when it, when it's been freshly groomed, it does have this like kind of like ridged or corduroy look to it. And then you'll see these two grooves off to one side that are the classic track. So that's kind of your standard groomed surface. And then as soon as people start using it, that corduroy really goes away. But um, we try to get up you know, a couple times a week to kind of refresh it or definitely after it snows to pack things down and set the new track. How do people like, obviously you and Matt and a bunch of the core people, you've been doing it for a long time. How did you get trained up to 
know how to use these the equipment and to like be able to grade that surface to get to the flatness because it's pretty magically flat when you go up there. You guys yeah. do a really good job. Well, I mean, we are on top of a road surface, but I mean, the 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 snow, the way it falls and blows around, is does not like lay like an even you know bit down there. So historically, we just try to get up there as 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 much as we can to. Um, and what's nice about the actual groomer piece of equipment is it has these tines that go down into the snow and can kind of break it up and move it around a little bit. So that will really help level it. The, the roller just kind of floats on top and kind of helps pack it down. But the groomer really, you know, kind of almost like a tiller in a way, oh, like a, yeah. a shallow yeah. tiller. And you can raise and lower that thing to, you know, get it deeper in depending on what kind of surface you're working with um but even with that we would get like you know certain areas of the track would be prone to like lots of snow drifts you know creating and there was like some years we'd get in there like with shovels to kind of like shovel it out just so we could get through because the snow drifts could get so big we couldn't really um <clears throat> flatten them so the last couple years though we have a new secret weapon in um, a local um, person in town who also owns a cabin up over Geyser Pass bought a bigger cat. And he would, you know, at first he was, you know, going up to Geyser Pass and it was great because the cat's wide enough it would really pack things out. And I think it was Matt got talking to him about our grooming program and he got really excited about it and bought... Um, a groomer to attach onto his cat. So he just is like, might as well just, you know, make a better trail when I'm going up. So he, um, he regularly grooms. Um, he doesn't put the classic track down, but, but puts the corduroy down, especially going up and over Geyser Pass, which is great. Yeah, that's a huge. And, and his equipment is so big that it can really pack it out and keep it level way way better than what we have and then he'll occasionally do runs out the gold basin um spur as well and and do that for us so i mean really it's like you know having this new groomer who comes with his own equipment that's way better than what we have but <laughs> but it's awesome you know you, know, just, you guys said that like if we build it they will come exactly whether it was intentional or not right i know so, so many things in if anyone town. sees gavin up there thank him because he's really helping us out all right you know, no two listeners yeah get gavin some beers or coffees or whatever, whatever he, he likes <laughs> whatever he likes i don't know gavin i don't know what he likes maybe we'll find out by the time the show airs and we will have that in the show notes right as we all have um all kinds of information about luna like for example luna um as you said is a volunteer organization uh, you've always had a very enthusiastic well it seems to me you've always had a very enthusiastic group and reliable group of volunteers mm -hmm. how do you um orchestrate that year after year um it's a little seat in my pants kind of thing i mean we people just get a hold of me every year that are interested and, you know, if, if we can get two or three years out of a person to help out, that's great. So, um, you know, like this year we have um, Ben is our new, like, really enthusiastic, you know, new guy who has some time on his hands. And so he's been helping out a lot. He also works for the Forest Service, but is on furlough. Um, you know, then Matt and myself 
uh, and a couple other, you know, I don't want to call them stragglers, but people that know what to do and can kind of jump in here and there and, and help. And also the, the guys with the um, Avalanche Center also help out occasionally because sometimes they'll need to use our snowmobiles and they'll like they'll just maybe hook up the the roller and you know pack some things out for us as they're heading up into the high country so um it it's just worked you know i mean honestly it's uh you know without i think that's why i've done it so long is because i haven't i don't really have to think about it most of the year and then winter comes around and then people surface and you know the word is out there and you know folks that have been kind of like seeing it happening for a few years oftentimes will be like hey i could help out with that so we just seem to find people that way synergy of the grassroots yes exactly experiment experience (laughs) in moab um do you have like an official training program or protocol that you do um we we do a training early in the season every year with the forest service because we're basically because we're volunteers we got to sign all sorts of forms and and then we really want to make sure that people train with our more experienced groomers so they just kind of learn the system and, um, you know, what to do. And, you know, it's very much the on-the-job kind of training. I mean, until we get people that have, like, oh, I've got tons of snowmobile experience. So great, but you're going to go really slow <laughs> <laughs> and, and tow heavy stuff. So it's a lot different than just going out and you know, zipping around on your snowmobile, but having snowmobile skills is really helpful. Although we've, we've had plenty of volunteers come in with little to no snowmobile skills, myself included. Like I had never been on a snowmobile (laughs) until I tried this. And really this is all, I've never done really any of the fun snowmobiling that people do. Um, I just go really slow and, you know, groom, groom things. So, Well, that's a great service to have. So if, if that's yeah. the one thing that you do on a snowmobile, our, right. our Nordic skiing community and backcountry access community really appreciates that. And uh, maybe that's a good um, point for us to go back into the etiquette of using these trails. Yeah. We, you know, we try to get the word out and we do have some signage. Um, although, honestly, I'm not positive the signs are up there right now. Um but what we just ask, because it's such a multi-use resource, um, we just like that ask that people, you know, just be considerate about what different users are doing. And so, you know, the, the classic track, those grooves on the side, we really ask that people don't like ski, walk, snowshoe, you know, let their dogs just like run right up along those tracks if, if possible, because those are... For, for a very specific purpose for the classic skiers. And then we also ask if people are walking that they really stay off to the side because they are, the, the people walking unfortunately probably do the most damage because they can end up like post holing through the center of the, the trail. And so if they're off to the side, it, it doesn't impinge so much on like the skate skiers use of the, of the trail. And, and same with the snowshoers. If they can stay off to the side, that, that's great. Um, and just not, yeah, like try not to go like four abreast across the trail, especially for the walkers. That, that's probably the, the biggest impact I think that we see. 
And, you know, I, I never would have thought that people would want to go up there and just walk. But because we create such a nice, you know, road for them to go, I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's, you know, even if they're post holing, they're like, no, this is great. So, um, and then we see a lot of, um, so there's a talking mountain yurts is up there. So they've got a yurt out the Gold Basin road and then they've also got one up at the top of geyser pass and they use a snowmobile to go in and like resupply the yurts and that kind of thing um and so we've got an arrangement with them where they especially going out the gold basin one that gets used a lot they try to use a, a, a track just off the side of ours um just to not do too much damage on our track so you know, we, we're just trying to educate people as much as we can and work with the other folks that are using things. And um, it's, you know, so far it, it goes pretty well. How many miles of trail are getting groomed these days? Well, um, I'm horrible with numbers, but I think... We can ish. Just, yeah. We're big on the ish here. So from the winter <laughs> trailhead, it is probably about three miles I'm going to say out to the end of the gold basin road and there's just a turn around there and then we come back and then about part way out there that that forks and then the, the left would take you up to geyser pass and that's probably maybe a little bit longer to, to get up there um than, than three miles say three and a half and then off the top of geyser pass off the back side we oftentimes will also groom a big meadow loop oh. that's up there. If someone wants to find out information about um, where the what the grooming status is, you know, there's mm -hmm. some years that it's just like, you know, the big game of telephone in Moab because it's snowing a lot. I was like, have right. they groomed? Have they groomed? Have they groomed? And you know, yeah. like, I don't know. Like, check the lunacite. The most reliable um, source of information is going to be the Utah Avalanche Center. Um, I think it's utahavalanchecenter.org um, website. And then... I think it's like slash Moab, but if you just go to the main page, you can link, just link to the Moab portion. And they are, they do daily um, avalanche forecasts and updates, and they have a grooming report on there. Oh, fantastic. So that is usually the most up-to-date. We are trying to get up there as soon as we can after it snows. It's just sometimes like the, when they plow the road, it's closed and we, we can't get up, you know, for a day or so. So, you know, as soon as, as soon as we can, we are up there grooming. And then when it is stable and we haven't had any fresh snow for a while, we do try to get up there about twice a week to just refresh it. The road conditions are also up on that avalanche forecast. Um, and you can even sign up for text updates, um, which they're trying to at least tell people like when the, the, the road's gonna be plowed so because they do close it completely to traffic. Oh, that's so helpful. If someone is interested, it's a little late in the season now, perhaps, but if they want to volunteer or donate mm -hmm. to Luna, how would they do that? The best thing would be to probably contact me through the Facebook page, I think, which is Luna, Luna Moab, Moab. Yeah. and um, send us a check or something like that. It's probably the, the easiest thing, even though that sounds so old fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> And we all know that, because we've seen it year after year, that um, the donations and the volunteer efforts have been uh, well allocated, 
and uh, it's very appreciated by this community. I hope people really do understand how volunteer driven mm-hmm. that um, the Nordic access is. And I'm just going to say Nordic is a broad term for not being on a snowmobile. Yeah. Um, and we really appreciate that and all that you guys have brought to the community. Well, thank you. We've, you know, we've had fun doing it. And I mean, it's in my best interest because I like to use the resource as well. <laughs> so, but it's a lot of work going. for best interest. But it can, yeah, it, it can nice be a lot of work sometimes. Well, thank you, Kirsten Peterson, for sitting down with us today on Great Wide Open and talking to us about all things Luna and grooming up in the LaSalle's. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Zoom in on the horse's head and see if it ran. That'd be so cool. Wouldn't that be good to see that? Just take a screenshot. Morning, Lisa. Morning, Eric. Morning, Dave. Morning. This is uh, part two of our great wide open winter special, snow special. And um, sitting here today with Eric Trenbeth and Dave Garcia from the Utah Avalanche Center Moab Division. And Eric. Listeners will know, you were my first guest on Great Wide Open yeah, gosh, all yeah. those many years ago. Man, has it already been? How long has that been? It's, yeah. been, a, it's been a hot minute. It was pre-pandemic. I think you were the first and last person <laughs> in, the, in the actual In the studio, pre-pandemic era? In, yeah. in the pre-pandemic era, in the KZMU studio. And then uh, we did another last year. With we did Brian? After the Burn with Brian Murdoch, which um, all you snow and LaSalle Mountain lovers out there should go back and listen to that one too. But let's get started by introducing um, Eric Trenbeth. Why don't you give the people who might be new to the show a little bit of a background on you? Well, my name's uh, Eric Trenbeth, and I have lived in Moab, well, seasonally since 1990, and I moved here around in 2000. Been river guide and other things in town, but uh, ski patrolling at Alta brought me to this avalanche job in the winter, and I've been forecasting avalanches in the LaSalle Mountains now for the Forest Service since 2013, this time around. And I did a shorter stint in the late 90s from 1999 to 2003. Were you, te- were you technically the first avalanche forecaster for the LaSalle region? No, no. There were, there were a couple before me, including, you know, Mark Yates in um, 19, from 89 to 92. And in 1992, we're coming up on the 31st anniversary of that. February 12th, 1992, Mark Yates and five other people went on a tour into Talking Mountain Cirque and Gold Basin. And all six in that party were buried in an avalanche, and 
four, including Mark Yates, were killed, and that was he was the very first forecaster in um, for the Moab area. And we did actually talk about that incident quite a bit in our first show. Tragic, tragic event <clears throat> that, that really affected the town and the trajectory of, of backcountry recreation and touring in the LaSalle's ever since, really. And then to my left, stage left, we have Dave Garcia, um, who I like to call Dave Jerry Garcia because of our shared affection for a band that, if you know, you know why I call him Dave Jerry Garcia. Fantastic guitar player. Both these guys, great musicians as well as great skiers and members of our community. Dave, why don't you enlighten us about your involvement with the Avalanche Center? Yeah, good morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I moved down to Moab in 2014 and then full-time in 2015 and came down originally to work on the rivers and had a lot of time off in the winter, so started skiing in the LaSalle's and eventually met up with Eric and we became really good ski partners and many years later um, this position opened up and um, started working with him as the assistant forecaster down here and the community outreach coordinator so in addition to forecasting I do fundraising and community events as well. Well maybe we'll do um, a quick pivot then on the community outreach thing because one thing I've noticed in the past couple of years has been that the social media game has been getting upped in, well, I would say actually Avalanche Center writ large, the um, folks up north, they've been doing some podcasts and you guys have had some great videos up there. I know you like to direct traffic to the main website and dear listeners, there will be show notes with all the information about the websites and social media sites that we talk about today. But has that been uh, something that you've been behind? Um, well, both of us are behind that, and social media is just huge, well, in everything really, but especially in avalanche forecasting, I mean, all over the West, all the centers use social media in a variety of ways, and it's just a really great way to get the message out, you know, it reaches more people, it's really visual, you know, you can really show things that are happening up there, so it's an awesome tool for us as forecasters. Do you have fun making those videos, or do they stress you out? A little of both, but they are a lot of fun, it's kind of a creative outlet for me to be able to piece these scenes together and talk about it and then during the day when we're out there we take little clips throughout the day and you start forming in your mind how you're going to tell the story of of what's going on out there and sometimes you know we'll just do an on the spot take here's what's happening and those are a little stressful because you're right on camera and you just got to get it done right um but those are a lot easier once they're done they're done and the other ones we put a quite a bit of time into where we do conditions reports splicing together different different clips and they're a lot of fun, but they do take a fair bit of time in the evening after already a long day. Right, right. You get home and you're like, oh, shoot, I still have another job to do. Yeah. I've been impressed, and I like it. And I think you both have a very good presence in front of the camera. And if you're at all uh, nervous or worried about getting all that information in off the cuff, it does not show. So, um, yeah, I've been really enjoying those videos and agree that, like, especially for a person who perhaps hasn't been through any sort of snow safety training there's a lot that gets packed into those videos that even if you don't really know what you guys are talking about, like the finger test or something like that, yeah. you see like a chunk of snow suddenly just collapsing to the ground. And so that really 
hopefully resonates with the people who don't really know what's going on. You know, that's really the challenge and what we do try to do in our forecast and in our videos is speak to different levels of, of understanding out there. And if we can, can, you know, show people how it's really hard layers or a slab or over a weak layer, that's the real message we're trying to get across. And sometimes just by pulling out that weak snow underneath with your hand, people are like, oh, that doesn't look good. Whereas people that have a little bit more education and advanced knowledge like to know about the finger tests and the different crystal types or the hand hardness test and the different layers that are in the snowpack. And so we try to reach across the spectrum, wouldn't you say, Dave, of understanding? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's the videos make it a lot easier for people to understand. And um, the forecasts are written in a way that um, more novice users can understand easily what we're talking about. But even, you know, more advanced users can kind of pick out some of the more specialized things from what we're seeing in the videos and what we're seeing in the forecast. So. And those are probably the people who really need that information the most because they're the most likely to venture out, or the snowmobilers, I guess, into the terrain where things could get sketchy. <laughs> goes both ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes being the experienced person can be a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It really can go both ways. You know, you worry maybe some of the more novice users that aren't aware of avalanche terrain might go into places. But, you know, once people start to get a little bit savvy or feel like they, they know a little bit more, then also they're going to maybe use that knowledge to push out into terrain too. So it is a double-edged Well, story. and the more novice user might just not have the physical skills to get themselves far enough, well, at least in our mountains. I don't know, you guys see yeah, that's possible for sure. And I think what, what Dave is, is really getting at is you can use this information depending on your personal bias. You can use this information sometimes to bolster your argument either way. And, and the more knowledgeable you are about a snowpack up to a certain extent, you can convince yourself that you can outsmart the snow, right? Which you can't. I mean, even to this day, I'm still trying to find ways where I can convince myself, oh, that no, that, that means I can, I can get away with that, actually, <laughs> right? Where, whereas other times the, the answer is obvious, but you can interpret this information in a variety of ways and get yourself into trouble with it. Well, yeah, like as one of my uh, air sports friends said, everybody has an orange light and it's just, do you stop the car before the light turns orange or do you push through the intersection as it's turning red? Exactly. And a lot of times you push through that intersection, you get away with it. And sometimes it's not quite as clean. That's a great analogy. Do you want to speak to how we've gone from basically rock climbing season in the LaSalle's in January to now we're full on ski season? Yeah, um, it actually snowed quite a bit in January. So we did have that one week of really warm temperatures and high pressure and people were climbing and riding mountain bikes. But Besides that one week of, in January, it snowed a lot. And if you've been paying attention, you know, November and December were really dry. We didn't get much snow at all. We had over three weeks in December where it didn't snow. Um, but all of a sudden, we're back over 100% of average. And that is really thanks to a very snowy January and a snowy start to February. So um, things took a turn, and the skiing is quite good. Um, the danger is still elevated, and things are still... Um, somewhat dangerous up there, but the ski quality has actually been great uh, the past few weeks. So, Just over the past week or so, we finally reached a 
breaking point with the snowpack, and it's hard. We've been telling people since early January it's considerable danger. Human-triggered avalanches three to six feet deep are likely. But nothing's happening, right? Because all this snow is hanging in a state of suspension. And then last week, or late fr Thursday, Friday, we ended up getting about 11 inches of snow, which is not a lot over 36 hours. And it ended up triggering a fairly major widespread natural cycle up in the upper elevations, on primarily on northerly aspects, but even wrapping around into west. And then on Sunday, we discovered what was likely a human triggered avalanche that was massive and that's exactly the kind of thing that we keep talking about in the report but until somebody does it or until it happens it doesn't become real and that danger is going to continue to persist for a little while longer for sure so by breaking point for the snow you just mean like we've got enough low on that unstable yeah. it's like a house of cards right the underlying layer the underlying snowpack structure that Dave mentioned from December and November is really loose, weak, and sugary, or what we call comprised of faceted grains. They're very dry, angular, poorly bonded snow crystals. And then you start building a dense slab on top of that, which is all the snow that fell in January. And you just keep adding incremental loads to this until the threshold is finally reached where the underlying foundation can't support the weight anymore. And then that's what creates an avalanche. That looked like a, quite an extreme avalanche. Uh, for those of you who um, haven't heard about this avalanche, you can see on the Instagram account that they've got some great pictures of um, this giant slide off of Tukno. And uh, what were like, how did dimension out? Like how oh, it's like, rise run? All that it's stuff? like 1,500 feet wide, probably up to six feet deep at the deepest part of the fracture. Um, most of the entire season snowpacked down into the November week faceted sugary snow and it ran for over 1500 vertical feet and put out a debris field that was also up to 2000 feet wide. Dave went in there. I was in there on Sunday. Dave went in there on Monday. Was it Dave? Yeah. And he stuck a avalanche rescue probe down in there, 300 centimeters. So, so, um, three meters, three yards, <laughs> three yard long avalanche probe and could not touch the, the ground underneath this debris. So it's a significant pile of snow. I feel like I, I saw someone make mention of something that was one of the biggest slides that they've seen in Rosa. You know, that was a little bit taken out of context. That was what, what I said was it's the second largest avalanche I've seen off of this particular okay. avalanche path. And then it got requoted as this is the second largest avalanche this forecaster has ever seen. <laughs> but it is massive. It's a very large, large avalanche. And fortunately, it seems like there was no... There was no collateral damage to any any humans that we know of? No, we haven't had any missing reports come in at this point in time. You know, Brian Murdoch and I were in there and we came across this field of debris that was quite fresh. We did a beacon search of the debris. Still weren't convinced that no one was involved because we didn't have a really good look at the starting zone. And so we called, I called Scott Sole or texted him. Um, he's the commander of the Winter Rescue Team and asked him if he would be able to jump in with classic helicopters and fly around and look at the starting zone and see if there were any tracks going into the slide. And he actually found tracks up there, but they were on the other side of the ridge. They, they, the tracks had come up right to the edge of the ridge crest where the avalanche was released and triggered. And then the tracks skied back down the other side. So it's very likely that this person triggered it while they were standing up there on the ridge, but they were not caught in it. Wow. And it was thanks to Scott flying around and thanks to classic <clears throat> helicopters for giving them that lift up there that we were able to come to this conclusion. Well, Dave, why don't you tell us what a day in the life of an avalanche forecaster is like? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so a typical day, you know, if I'm gonna write the forecast the next day, um, I'm in the field all day, um, gathering information. So, you know, we're generally traveling on skis. Sometimes we use snowmobiles and we're just trying to access as much terrain as we can and different aspects, different elevations. Um, I usually have a question in my head that I'm trying to answer throughout the day based on what has been going on. And I'll just do a bunch of investigating and try to answer that question throughout the day. And maybe I come up with new questions as I'm, I'm going throughout my day. Uh, and then I get home and I kind of compile all of that information and study the weather for that night and the next day. And then I get up really early in the morning, um, usually about 5 a.m. and check the weather once again and check our automated weather stations up there. We can see if it snowed overnight. We can see what the winds have been doing. We can see what the temperatures are. And then just kind of start going at it and compiling that day's forecast. And it's usually about two hours uh, to write that forecast in the morning. And we have it out uh, by 7.30 a.m. every morning. And then usually go right back in the field that next day. And it's really great, honestly, to write a forecast and then to be able to go out in the field and I can verify that forecast. And I can be like, was I right? Was I wrong? What did I miss? What's changing? And then I can come home and kind of repeat the whole process over again. And um, Eric and I pretty much have communication every night, you know, based on what we're seeing, um, whether it's my forecast or his forecast. Um, usually one of us, any given day, one of us is up there in the field. So, Do you ever have uh, an instance where you're like, holy cow, I got to like call back to base camp and have them rewrite the forecast because this that or this happened do you ever have like on the no that's pretty rare um actually just two days ago right now two days ago that happened up in salt lake um it started snowing really hard and it was unexpected and they actually bumped the danger up to high i believe it was that considerable and it's very rare to change the forecast um you know once you have it out in the morning um, but, you know, if we're surprised by something, um, we now have, we can send out text alerts and we can do Instagram posts. So if we do see something that's like, whoa, this is way out of left field or this is really surprising, you know, we can use the social media to kind of get that out and then amend the forecast the next day. Sometimes we blow a forecast, you know, and in fact, it's not always perfect, but it's usually not far enough off that it requires that dramatic of yeah. a change. But the texting, I'm glad you brought that up because you can sign up for text alerts now. You can go on the website and sign up for them on our forecast. And that is a good tool. And not only are we using it to let people know, hey, the danger has changed. Things are worse than we thought. We also put road plowing information in that. So even this morning, we a text alert went out that said the Geyser Pass Road will be closed for plowing. So it's a great way to get more real-time, up-to-date information is to sign up for those text alerts. So that's why you guys are sitting here available on a powder day because the road is closed for plowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's exactly why. <laughs> Otherwise, one of us has to get up really early and get up there and try to beat plow. On your last forecast, I'm curious about this question thing because I like that kind of line of thinking. Do you have a, a question for your already ready for your next outing? And if not, what was your last question and how did you answer it? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, my last forecast day um, was a high danger rating, and it was the first time we went to high danger all season. Um, so the question that I had was to verify that. 
Like, is this truly high danger? Because especially that morning, too, um, the data that we had was a little hard to interpret and a little maybe misleading um, based on our snow tell and our snow stake and what I was seeing down in the Abajos versus here. And so basically that was my question that day. I want to go out and verify, is this high danger? And sure enough, we went up and um, saw a natural avalanche on a slope that I had never seen avalanche before. And then um, Eric has only seen that slope slide one time in all of his time here in the LaSalle's. And usually during high danger, you're going to see avalanches in uncommon places. And so that was kind of the first bit of information. And then we got some visibility. And then a little bit later, we saw a very large uh, avalanche, natural avalanche that failed deep on that buried persistent weak layer and ran to the ground. And the crown was three to four feet. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is, this is happening. Big natural avalanches are happening. And uh, so that kind of verified my, my forecast that day. Is there any sort of like, like emotional or political resistance to issuing a high danger? Ah. You both are, you know, they can't see you, but you both kind of chuckling. Well, so. that's funny because we were up yesterday and our friend Nate was in the field with us yesterday and he asked us a very similar question. Like, is there a pushback to going to high danger? And actually there's not. Um, you know, our director, Mark Staples, he's very much as encourages us to use high danger when it's warranted. And um, we have five danger ratings we can use. We can even go above high, we can use extreme. And um, Mark likes to see us use the full spectrum of the danger rating to show changing conditions in the mountains. And so, um, you know, I don't really have any kind of hang up about going to high, like if it's high, it's high. And I want to tell it like it is, you know. But the thing is, there, there, there is criteria, and then some of it's embedded in our brains, that high danger is associated with natural avalanche activity. Considerable, we've been at for a long time now. That's the orange color. And that's where it often is in La Salle. Maybe 40% of the season is considerable danger. And that means human-triggered avalanches are likely, and natural avalanches are possible. And then you go to high danger, and it means natural and human-triggered avalanches are likely. So it's kind of a fine, can be a fine line between the two. And a lot of times that period or that window when natural activity is occurring is a very short window. It might be a one hour span in the storm or less when the precipitation intensity is the greatest and the winds are the strongest and that load has built up and suddenly everything releases. And that might happen overnight. And so we're like, yeah, it was high danger last night, but it's not now. But on the other hand, maybe we should have high danger a little longer on each side. High danger, and, and some people, especially beginner users, they don't know about this, this five layer uh, scale is harder to comprehend and they only understand it's dangerous or it's not dangerous, but it's very nuanced. And so high danger or low danger are maybe something that only certain people understand, but it's a range and it's all based on likelihood and size and distribution. Like how widespread, are you gonna trigger the same avalanche on similar slopes everywhere, or is it only going to happen on isolated terrain features? Are they going to be big avalanches? Or are they going to be small avalanches? Are they going to be new snow? Or are they going to go down into old weaker snow? So all of these things factor into the danger scale. I feel like just inherently we err towards um, talking about the south because obviously that's our local ski mm -hmm. area, and the people who are listening to this are probably LaSalle Mountain users. Um, how are we looking in the Abajos? We've stopped issuing 
daily danger ratings down there because we don't get down there enough. An avalanche forecast is only valid for 24 hours because things can change so quickly. And we're just not down there enough to have enough reliable data for 24 hour danger rating changes. So we try to get down there once a week, get a general idea of the snowpack, describe that to people. It's mostly being updated on Fridays or Mondays or when it gets really dangerous, um, we'll update it more often during when weather um, dictates. What we're mostly using now is the National Weather Service to get our information out for the Abajos. We have what's called an avalanche warning and we can issue that through the Weather Service and then it comes up on their site and people, Grand County, San Juan County, all these folks are picking it up now that don't normally read our forecast and that's the purpose of an avalanche warning. And we found that the users in Monticello, primarily the snowmobiling crowd, it's just not in their habit to check the avalanche forecast. And so by issuing an avalanche warning and saying, look, things are really dangerous, they're getting that information. So that like comes across like on a NOAA site yes. or something like that? Yeah, and that's been a super helpful tool, especially the last few days um, where the avalanche danger has spiked to high. And the Abajos have a, a very weak snowpack this season, um, similar to the LaSalle's, but maybe even a bit weaker. And um, the last few days they've been doing well for snowfall and also heavy snow, a lot of water content. So um, things are dangerous down there. And this tool has been awesome to get the avalanche warning out. And it seems like it's working. Like the feedback we're getting is that it's totally working down there. So oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, I was just down there last Saturday actually as well. So I had a good idea of what the snowpack was looking like before this storm. But even right after the Thursday, Friday storm, there was some natural activity down there. And we even got it reported to us from, from locals. So. So they're getting tapped in with you guys too, getting some on the ground. Yeah. yeah. Volunteer stuff. It seems yeah. like you Yeah, it's really cool. Um, you know, there are skiers down there, there's people riding snowmobiles, and they tell us what they're seeing and they send us observations from the Abajas, which is really useful for us because like Eric said, we're not there all the time and if people are actually in the backcountry and they can tell us what they see, that's really helpful and we can share that on our website with everybody. So nothing beats boots on the ground. That's right. <laughs> Especially if it's a reliable source. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, one thing that you guys have been doing, and Dave, I guess this will speak to you, um, there's been a fundraising event now for the past couple of years, um, which has been a really, well, I guess actually it's just expanded. It's gone on for a while, but now it's becoming an event that yeah. is getting a lot of local support. Yeah, um, so that's something that I kind of took on when I took the job. Um, part of my job is fundraising, and so... The goal was to do a big community event, uh, one in the fall to kind of kick off the winter season and then one in the spring. Um, so we've been doing ski wax party um, in early December at the mark and it's been a pretty big hit. It's been a lot of fun. Um, we get waxing supplies and people come and wax their skis and the Moab Brewery has been really generous and they've sponsored the event. So we've had beer from the brewery there and we get local businesses to donate things for an opportunity drawing and also the Utah Avalanche Center, they donate gear and equipment that we give away and we give away some really awesome prizes. Um, Jonathan Dutro from Talking Mountain Yurts donated a couple nights at the yurt and we gave that away. And actually just two days ago, I was up in the mountains and I ran into the folks that won the yurt prize and they were headed up to go use it and they were like we have the yurt and it's because of your party and it was just so awesome to see them they were all psyched 
Um, so that's been a really fun event. And the great live music, too, that has gone along with that. And, of course, Lisa and the Wingmen, or whatever, <laughs> whatever you're Or the Wingmen without is. Lisa this year. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's been awesome, so it's been really The trigger-happy Flyboys. They've been rebranded as the trigger-happy Flyboys. Yeah, it's just made it a really fun event, and um, we plan to do it every December. So, And then um, in March, we do the Banff Film Festival, and that's coming up on the 21st and the 22nd this March. And we'll have two nights at Star Hall and great outdoor films and another really great fundraiser for the Avalanche Center. So, It's really great when, the, when these fundraisers are they're, they're fun, and they raise funds. Right. So, there's like no good reason not to go Moab, so everybody should be out there for these film festivals. Yeah, totally. Not just trying to make money, but you know, make fun community events for, for people in town. And also to cre- create some awareness that there is an Avalanche Center here and kind of maybe reach some people that we wouldn't reach otherwise. And then another, um, I don't know if you want to call it an event, but service uh, classes that you guys provide, you do an avalanche safety um, or awareness. You can tell me, Eric, what it's exactly called. <laughs> well, we do an annual free know-before-you-go avalanche awareness talk at the Mark, usually in December as well. And that has gone through some transformations over the years, and there's a new curriculum that's pretty exciting. And if you've seen it before in the past, it's maybe worth coming to again next year because it's different. And then we do a Backcountry 101 class, and Dave has been helping me teach those for years. And um, it's a night class. There's some online curriculum, a night classroom session, and then a day out in the field. And we had a full class this year with some great uh, things to see. The snowpack was pretty unstable, and so students actually got to see what this means and what we're talking about in stability tests. They practice rescue. They learn how to use their beacons and their probe and their shovel. We talk about safe travel techniques and how to recognize avalanche terrain. And that happens every year. We've also done that class for motorized users in the past. It's been a while since we've done one of those, but we'd love to do another one. Motorized people obviously travel different in the backcountry than non-motorized, so it's kind of a different curriculum. Um, sometime this month, we're going to be having a trailhead awareness program, right, Dave? Up there at the yeah, trailhead. Yeah, and that's basically Eric and I will be hanging out. We'll pick a weekend day where the weather is nice, but the skiing is also really good. So, you know, it's been busy up there on weekends, and we'll just have a presence there at the trailhead and let people know what conditions are like and what's going on out there and maybe what to look out for. So mostly an advisory about the snow conditions, not like... The etiquette or rules of travel. Okay. Snow conditions and the fact that we have an avalanche center and this is where you can go to find information. We'll also be telling people about the Beacon Park that we have just right up the road. You can go up and practice your your, uh, beacon skills on your way out in the field. It only takes about five minutes, especially if you know what you're doing, (laughs) right? You flip a little switch on the box, a beacon that's buried out there is activated and you go out and search for it with yours and you probe it when you find it and then you just pack up and move on. And so we'll be telling people about that. And if time allows, we may even try to do a beacon clinic up there. And for people who don't know what a beacon is, would you like to elaborate on? Also, an avalanche beacon or an avalanche transceiver, everyone wears one or should wear one when they go out into the backcountry and into avalanche terrain. And basically it emits a signal and everybody goes out and they turn their beacon to send, which means it's emitting or transmitting a signal. And if you get buried, your partners switch to receive and then they can pick up that signal and they use that to locate you buried underneath the snow. And people who are traveling in like snowmobiles or whatever should also be planning on having these things when they're traveling in the backcountry. Yep. 
So for our boots on the ground people that want to like help you guys out, um, what would be your best tip or suggestion for someone who's like, I'd like to participate with providing information? Yeah, um, that is really, really important to us too. If people are out there and they're skiing, they can send us observations and reports of what they're seeing and they can log on to our website and there's a very easy form that they can click on submit an observation and then there's all these prompts and they just fill out um, and tell us what they saw and it doesn't have to be super scientific that you can just tell me where you were what you saw oh there was six inches of new snow or i heard a collapse and i saw cracks in the snow and this is where i was when i saw that or I saw a recent avalanche and I took a picture of it and I'm putting it on this form and now you guys can see that recent avalanche. So it can be very basic and any information helps us. Like the more information we can get about what's going on up there just really helps us a lot. So Paints a bigger picture. Totally. It does and we have a kind of a comparative dearth of information to other regions. Like up in Salt Lake, they, they get like... 10 or 20 observations a day from people. We might get that a month or let, you know. Um, they've got ski patrols and, and UDOT and weather stations all over the mountains and they just have, they're flooded with data. We have a couple snowtail sites, one wind station, Dave and I out there wandering around, and then we have a handful of core observers that are really good and that will provide us with information that they're seeing, but we want more. All right, well, it's been a great opportunity to catch up with you guys. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? You know, I'd like to say just keep checking the forecast. Check it every day. Stay on top of things. Then you'll be really informed when you go out and make safe decisions. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Eric. And thanks, Dave Jerry. And it's been great sitting down with you. Let's do it again next year. You can catch Great Wide Open on the KCMU Airwaves every second Monday of the month at 4 p.m., Archives are at kzmu.org or on your podcast player at KZMU Public Affairs.